Oh, uh, I have to share a funny story. Um, it was a story of a little boy who was, um, was a little bit of a surprise. He had three older sisters, and uh, it wasn't that he wasn't, un it wasn't wanted, it was just he came un unplanned. So he had older sisters and, and a mom. And so as the fourth child gets maybe some of the parenting leftovers and you know there's other things going on, uh, uh, the little boy was a little late in getting weaned from, um, from breastfeeding. And so uh, he was in a crowded room with his mom who was trying to instill a no, because you know it's bad when he can ask for it, right? Uh, and, and so, you know, she's trying to like cut him off uh, and, and he's sort of protesting this. And again, um, a room full of crowded women and older sisters, and he looks around and he's sort of sizing up everyone around to which he yells, would somebody in here just nurse me? <laughs> and that's when you know it's time to cut him off <laughs> when he can ask for it. Uh, and that's funny on a lot of levels, uh, but one of the things that I think makes it spiritually true of us is that I love being spiritually fed. In fact, I prefer to be spiritually fed than to sort of have to prepare a meal for myself, spiritually speaking. Now, when it comes to food, I have a saying that says it always tastes better when someone else makes it. Uh, however, when it comes to our spiritual life, our spiritual vitality, I think true spiritual growth comes when we're able to, at some point, not entirely, but feed ourselves. To which I would ask you the question, what renews you, spiritually speaking? What is it that reignites or reconnects you with the heart of the Father? How is it that you pursue, on a regular or an intentional way, intimacy with God? The church hasn't always set itself up to be a part of the solution. In fact, in a lot of ways, the way we set up church, me talking to you, becomes a, a, a bit of a spiritual enabler, that we come to church to kind of get filled so that we can go out and then we'll come back maybe a week later and get another sort of meal. Except good nutrition, a good diet, means that we're constantly eating in, 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 a, in a sort of right rhythm or a right way daily. And so uh, I think when we start to kind of look at someone else as our spiritual feeding ground, the ones who are in charge of doing it for us, I think we miss out on something. And so um, I think that it's an unintended consequence of the way we set up church, but vibrant faith, I believe, is when we come with our questions and we come with our doubts and we come with an ability to share faith and ultimately when we're able to feed others. If there was ever a subject that you struggled with in school, but you had maybe a younger sibling, or there was some kid that you got involved in a relationship with, when you got involved in the tutoring process, you learned that far better than just sitting in a lecture. I think our spiritual lives were supposed to look the exact same way. And so when I talk about a rhythm for apprenticing, what I'm talking about is us, regardless of how long we've been a Christian, regardless of how much Bible study, Sunday school, or formal spiritual training that we've had, 
I'm talking about a relationship with Christ where you understand the difference that Christ makes in you and you're able to put words to it and give it away to someone else. Now, I, I always like to say, as I said earlier, that um, I think we're all supposed to be and we're supposed to have a model to follow, <laughs> a shoulder to cry on, uh, and a kick in the pants. In other words, I think we're all supposed to be that for someone and we're supposed to receive that from someone. Another way I've heard it talked about is we should all have in our lives, and if you understand these biblical profiles, a Paul, a Barnabas, and a Timothy. In other words, we should have someone in our lives that's further along. There's someone in our lives that's supposed to be sort of walking with us, shoulder to shoulder. And then there's supposed to be someone that we're bringing along. I think that is the most healthy, vibrant recipe for spiritual growth. I think ultimately it's only the Holy Spirit that brings transformation. It's only the Holy Spirit that really renews our heart. But there are things that we can do. There's our, these are things that we can begin to practice and lay the groundwork so that the ground actually becomes fertile for transformation. And that comes with both the rhythms and specifically tonight, this idea of apprenticing. And so uh, the goal of salvation isn't merely to go to heaven, but if you grew up in church, oftentimes that was kind of sold as the end-all be-all of your knowing Christ, so you don't have to go to hell. But the idea of going to heaven is just merely a byproduct of something I think that's transformationally supposed to happen here and now. And I think the one of the ways that it begins to happen more in us is, is when we... Um, and is, is when we learn how to give away our faith in both tangible ways and in articulate ways to another. The Greek word, when Jesus talks about what he's saving people from, um, and you can think of different stories, whether it be the woman at the well or, or, or whatnot, when people saves them, the idea of the Greek word saves is the Greek word of sozo, which is, talks about a deliverance or, or, or a protection, but it's not fr um, uh, from here to there, as in destinations. It's this to that. In other words, when we talk about what it means to work out our salvation on earth, what we're talking about is the hope that's available to work from addiction to recovery, from bankruptcy to solvency, from anxiety and alienation and loneliness to community and joy and compassion to work ourselves away from greed and to work into salvation that looks like generosity. It means from being a sort of abandoned or on our own to practicing hospitality. And so there's a kind of salvation that I think we're invited to work out, not as independent people, but as a community of people. And so when the Hebrews would always hear the word of God, the idea was that salvation was communal, not just personal. So that's what I think is so meaningful about a community of faith coming together. And the major defining thing isn't a static vision statement about why we exist, but rather it's a shared set of spiritual practices that reveal the heart of God and we can live them, we can talk about them, we can do them whether we're gathered or whether we're scattered. And so tonight I wanna to talk about what it means to pursue apprenticing. Uh, as a spiritual uh, rhythm. And so I think the thing, apprenticing precedes transformation. 
me say that again. If desire in all of our heart is for some kind of change, that a year from now, I want my life to feel different. I want to, I want to deal with different temptations. I want to, if, if all of our desire is to experience transformation, to experience growth, I believe that it, our transformation is preceded with apprenticing, both as a giver and a receiver. What I mean by that is, I think we can only go so far on our own. You can have the strongest self-discipline. You can have the strongest self-will. You can read all the self-help books and get really determined, even with some accountability. But at the end of the day, your spiritual growth, I think, is dependent on someone else helping you get there. Similarly, I think your spiritual growth is dependent on you helping someone else go further along. That's one of the things that makes parenting so challenging and so rewarding at the same time. It's one of the things that when you look at your kids and you kind of kick yourself because sometimes the worst parts of them are only a reflection of me. <laughs> and some of the tendencies that they have are the same tendencies that I have regarding to impatience and whatnot. Except that my life, whether I'm intentional or not, is already being, uh, my life in Christ is already being reflected into them. And so my call is simply for an intentionality, a, a kind of a language to be in, to describe that which I want to see in them and through them. Now, to, the best way that I can illustrate this is through the character of Barnabas. Barnabas, his name literally means the son of encouragement. He is sort of that person that you would want. And maybe when we're talking today, you think about Oh, there's someone that just, I feel like, is shoulder to shoulder with me um, through thick and thin. They're the ones that I can call at 2 a.m. They're the ones that I can lean on. They're the one. It's, it's just that, uh, that sort of companion that you have. But Barnabas, even though his name is Son of Encouragement, has a really significant yet unpronounced role in Scripture. And what I want to do is just highlight some of the very little we know about Barnabas. Barnabas missed the cut. We know that his name means son of encouragement, and after Judas had his fall, the disciples saw Jesus rise, and so they gathered up together, and they're like, well, what do we do now? He was literal when he said he won't always be with us, and so I guess the first order of business is let's fill out the 12 now that we're down to 11, and so they cast lots. Do you remember reading about this? And there was two men there. It was Matthias who got the nod. He's the one that became the fill-in 12th disciple, if you will, because Judas um, kind of didn't work out. And, and here you have Barnabas, who um, he didn't even make the cut. And yet the, the ministry and the trajectory of Barnabas was so much more significant than what we ever read of Matthias. Now, here's what else we know about Barnabas, is that he didn't need a position or a title or even any recognition to make a difference. This is really significant when we give our lives in service, in compassion, in generosity, is that ultimately the audience is the Lord and he sees the gift. He sees the investment. And so what we hear and read about in the early, the, the, the church came together, Jesus had ascended, and they recognized that there were needs among them that they all didn't have the same kind of level of education or the same level of economic standing. And so what we know is that he was a person of means because it says that he sold a, a parcel of land and he donated all of it to meet the needs of the community of faith. 
it doesn't talk about a strong ass. There wasn't arm twisting. It was just, hey, there's needs among us, and I got a vacant lot. Let me sell the lot and make sure no one has needs, because the idea of generosity was always communal. The idea of blessing was always communal. The idea that someone would benefit while someone would lose was contrary to the good news of salvation. There shouldn't be growing economic disparity. There should be a growing equality going on. And so if one has and one doesn't have, we need to right that ship and let that be the testimony of a living faith. And so that's the very little we know. Now, there's just these kind of um, snapshots. And we've been talking about snapshots because we've been walking a mile in people's shoes. And so if we had our camera phone, this is where I would pull out my camera phone and take a picture of his sandals because I want to walk a mile in Barnabas's sandals. Barnabas has this introduction. Now, Paul, or before he's Paul, he's Saul. Saul was renowned. They would have had like, um, you know, uh, you know, kind of the America's Most Wanted or, you know, or, or maybe baseball cards made about him because he was so renowned in his persecution of the Christians. He was so devout in his Judaism that it was at the expense of Christians, both in beating and, and torturing and imprisoning. And yet he finds Christ. And so he finds Christ on the road to Damascus God calls out, blinds him for three days, and yet he repents. He comes to this saving knowledge, and the, the voice that he heard while blinded was, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Well, he's persecuting all these other Christians. Well, what's interesting is, when he comes to faith in Christ, no one really wants to embrace him. All the Christians straight arm them. That's good for you. We think this is just another plot to get us beat. So no one really embraces him. And so here's what Barnabas does. He finds him in Damascus. And if we read um, in um, Acts chapter 9, verse 26, Acts 9, 26, this is where we see the kind of person Barnabas is. Uh, beginning in verse 26. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was really a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. And so Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Grecian Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the brothers learned of this, he took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So we have this picture of, of again, taking a picture of these shoes. Barnabas taking him literally by the hand. It says when he says it took hold of him and brought him to the disciples, it says that the Greek words actually imply that he took him by the hand and he led him. Um, and that the apostles, even they affirm his belief in him, his conversion and this new life. It's like he's with me. I'm vouching for him. If he's gonna, if he's gonna flog you, flog me. But I trust him. So trust me, if, if, if I have any, any kind of influence with you, believe me. And so you have this, and so he shows mercy and he, and, and he sees something beyond him just simply than his past. And he gives counsel, and I think you know, he also softened his edges, and he teaches Paul a kind of humility. It was, I think, one of the things that set Paul up 
to kind of have the kind of New Testament ministry that we have, where books of the Bible and churches get planted because of Barnabas, the guy who missed the cut, the guy who never had a title or a position. He just had a little property, and he tried to bless those around him. He picked a guy out of a crowd who was kind of a jerk, kind of a loudmouth, and no one seemed to like, and I think he spent the time firsthand trying to get him known for himself. Maybe took him out to coffee and said, what's the deal? Let me show you some of the blind spots that are in your life, because this is why people don't want to listen to you. Has anyone ever done that for you? I think we live in a culture that has not only authority issues, we have accountability issues. We don't like when people give us constructive feedback. But the question is, is who can you receive that from? Who are you least likely to get defensive if they were to say, you know when you talk like this, this is how it comes off? You know when you, when you say this or when you act like this, this is how it rubs people. Have you ever had anyone like that? I think Barnabas was this for Saul. I think Jesus was this for the disciples. I think this is what we're invited into when we become apprentices of Christ and when we're called to apprentice others. It's garnering the kind of trust to be able to speak into someone's life and bring out their potential. Um, and so what is the great irony, if you flip over, there's a, in just a couple of chapters later, they start out and they do a missionary journey. And it, and, it, and it went over well, and so Paul has these missionary journeys. Barnabas is for more or less just along for the ride because he's just an encourager. He's not really a teacher. Um, he, he's just gonna kind of fill in the gaps. And, and every community needs people to fill in the gaps. We don't, we don't always need positional leadership to feel validated, to feel important. But here's what Barnabas does. They're about to take a second missionary journey and, um, you know, they're kind of like, well, let's get this guy to go. And this guy, oh, he's good with this. And he's helpful with this. And let's take her for this. And so they're kind of putting together their team to go out on the second missionary journey. And in, um, first, before we get there, I want to read one verse in, in Acts 12, <clears throat> where it says that when Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. John Mark is the author of the Gospel of Mark, but he had a, a, a bit of an auspicious beginning. It was sort of a, um, um, came out of the gates, uh, but didn't show real well. And so Saul, uh, now Paul, isn't a big fan of the Gospel writer Mark. This is uh, before he actually wrote the book. But in Acts chapter 15, uh, we, we read these words that he wrote um, in verse 37 through 39. And he says... Um, 37 through 39, there we go. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let us go back and visit the brothers in all the towns that we have preached and the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark with them, but Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted him in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company and Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus while Paul chose Silas and left, uh, and left commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. In other words, I'll take my guy and you take your guy and we're going to keep building the kingdom. I totally disagree with you for taking Mark because he's a big fat flake and he's too much of a fraidy cat and he's got to be able to take it on the chin and he couldn't handle it. So don't, let's not bring him on round two. And he's like, I'm with that guy. 
I'm taking them. They disagreed so much that it says, well, God bless you, go in peace. I'm going to, you know, Cyprus or whatever. And so the irony of that is not lost on me, that when someone can look beyond his past, but somehow Paul couldn't see beyond John Mark's sort of humble beginnings. And yet Barnabas did it for Paul, and now he's going to do it for John Mark. And they do this great work together. And so they set sail, and they go on the second missionary journey. I think the lesson we learn from Barnabas' conviction, the reason why he separates so that he could mentor John Mark, is that no one peaks in their performance until someone really believes in them. Do you have someone who has believed in you? Do you have someone that saw something in you and was willing to bring out the potential and even offer the kind of accountability, the kind of guidance to help you get there? Frankly, I think this is missing in our society. I think it's missing because we don't have a lot of spiritual elders. And and, and I think the, the way we begin to see our own lives transformed is when we can be able to have people speak to our own potential. And we're willing to be made uncomfortable. We're willing to try new things. We're willing to be stretched in capacities. I'm, I'm looking at Erin King. Erin King um, does this for me. She came up here and she did a wonderful job giving these announcements. She's, she's eloquent. Um, she's very articulate. She's very poised. And she's a total introvert who doesn't actually like attention. But she's always willing to have me prompt her. And even though she's an introvert, she said to me almost a year ago, I'm a little bit shy, but if you give me a job, I'm really good because I have something to do. I was like, well, we have this thing called children's ministry and you work in educational publishing. This would be perfect. And everything that we keep doing, whether it be teen moms down there or you know, working in children's ministry and looking for missional outreach, Erin keeps finding her voice because I think that the cement isn't dry. There's still a teachability. There's still a willingness to be made uncomfortable. I love that. I think transformation is something that we see over time. We'd like it to be in an instant, an overnight success story, like we won the lottery. I don't think God works that way very often. Um, but what we see ultimately in 2 Timothy 4:11, just so Paul comes full circle, and Paul's writing says, only Luke is with me. Get, um, get Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful to me and my ministry. And so ultimately, and we don't know all the details, but, but Paul had a change of heart to his credit. Even though he became short-sighted, maybe you can argue hypocritical, he eventually came around both as an apprentice and one who is apprenticing. Oh yeah, that guy, he stumbled, but now he's worth something. I remember years ago, I did this huge outreach and I lost a ton of money. I mean, I, I felt like I lost my shirt on it. And if you know me, I am not a spender. And so, um, you know, we had nine bands, we were doing this huge outreach, we had inflatables and um, just didn't get the turnout that I had hoped for. And uh, I remember um, the senior pastor talking with me and, and in so many words saying, because he knew me, but he, and he knew that, you know, I was really upset over this and lost money. And he says, in essence, well, now you're worth something. I don't think you'll ever make that same mistake again. 
to which I felt like was a huge measure of grace to say, oh, no, no, that's part of the learning curve. And you could argue the same thing about Mark. Yeah, it got tough. Yeah, persecution comes with the territory, except that Barnabas kept seeing something in him and saw his potential. I think ultimately what spiritual leadership is when we assume the role of, of the mentor is being able to see who they can become in Christ. Can they lead a small group? Can they lead an outreach? Can they host something? What is it that they can do in relation to Christ that you can coach them in? I think there's something really beautiful about that. And so the two questions that I think we all start to wrestle with is, um, is what makes life so meaningful? And, and, and then the second thing is, what will be my legacy? In other words, what will be my impact? Because I think in all of us, we, we want to have, um, know that our lives make a difference. And I would simply say that I believe the substance of life is our capacity to convey and reveal a living faith. And everyone is able. In other words, how do we reproduce ourselves? How do we give ourselves to something that's eternal? something that's going to pay dividends. I mean, ultimately, my name will continue because of my children, and I hope that they're not only good, um, you know, parents uh, after my modeling, but something that they take in their relationship with Christ and actually leverage that for good in the world. But I think this thing of apprenticing is part of what it means to be legacy builders. It's how we reproduce our lives, specifically our spiritual lives, into another I read something interesting this week. It was an interview with David Letterman. And you know, he was in that, locked in that late night battle for years and years, uh, you know, with, with Jay Leno and The Tonight Show. And um, he, he, I don't know if you've seen him lately. He, he looks like he's moved off the grid and has just become this kind of hip. He has a huge beard and he looks homeless. Uh, and, and um, um, but he's, he's still really quick-witted, and he still has this really keen sense. But it was really interesting, after he got off the crazy train, that it was the adrenaline of his career, and he started to reflect on his career, he had some interesting things. He says, I don't miss late-night television, which is really interesting that you can walk away from it. I mean, we saw that in Brett Favre. He kept unretiring because he couldn't walk away from it because he didn't know life outside of it. I had a friend who was a police officer for years and years, and one day he retired you know, at 57 and took an early drop, and he didn't know what to do with himself. He was beside himself. He actually ended up getting a job at the assistant, as an assistant district attorney so he could keep investigating, because it's like, what do you do after you've done that for so long? Letterman doesn't miss late-night television. I think that's credit to him, that he's not defined by, I need a camera in front of me, or the applause of people or critics or whatever. But he said... And I'm a little embarrassed to say that for 33 years, it was the laser focus of my life. For all the time he spent vying to succeed Johnny Carson at NBC's Tonight Show and then locked in combat with his one-time friend, Jay Leno, it was Mr. Leno who got the gig instead and then surpassed him in the ratings. And talking about his experience, Mr. Letterman said, it took a lot of energy and probably would have been better expended elsewhere. Now it just seems like, really? That's what you did? He added, I know I succumbed to the pressure of the rivalry that was constructed between Jay and myself. 
pressed even further, Letterman acknowledged that he did that he did not that he had not excuse me that he had not been a passive participant in this competition and that some essential part of himself had been fueling it. I think there's something wrong with me, he said, only half joking. And then he added, maybe life is the hard way. I don't know. When the show was great, it was never as enjoyable as the misery of the show being bad. Is that human nature? What will happen at the end of your life based on what you've invested your life in. And I don't know, I don't care if you've kind of retired from your day job. I like to say that that in the kingdom of God, there is no retirement. There there is no such thing as spiritual arrival. So just keep rolling up your sleeves and investing to be people of hope and justice and of mercy. But if you still have a day job, what is it that defines you? Hopefully, we can give a sort of testimony, not unlike Letterman, but to be able to say what it was all worth. I think when we start to talk about apprenticing, what we're talking about is how we articulate a living faith, how we express a living faith, how we demonstrate a living faith. And so uh, one of the ways I I like to think about that is through our rhythms. And... um, The vision for our rhythms, generosity, hospitality, community, apprenticing, compassion, gratitude, and renewal. Those things are ways that I think we can know God better. And your notes tonight, I included just uh, kind of a run through of why I believe in those. But Jesus never said, go and make converts. In fact, he never said, go and plant churches. He never said, go and start small groups. He simply said, go and make disciples. So how are we at doing in, doing in the disciple making process? And the way I could ask that, another way I could ask that is, how reproducible is our faith? My solution to that, um, even though ultimately the Holy Spirit is the one that brings transformation, rhythms are the way that we can work out our salvation. So number one, they remind us of what's true about God. I believe that we're created in the image of God. We are a reflection of God. So when we're generous, it only reflects on God. When we are hospitable or when we practice living within sustainable margins like renewal, uh, when we show compassion and gratitude, when we do all these things, it's a reflection of the heart of God. And by the way, you don't need to be a Bible scholar to talk about those things. Uh, secondly, they help form Christ in us. Just like I want to have an exercise regimen because I want to form some physical attributes, um, I need a spiritual diet that I'm going to consume so that I can form Christ in me to sustain my spiritual health. Thirdly, they give us words to share, uh, specifically uh, our our faith to others. it, It allows us to talk about the difference Christ is making. In the book of Acts, we see that he just simply sends them out and says, go proclaim the kingdom of God. I would define that as talking about the difference Christ is making in me. Can you do that? Because that's worth doing. And number four, when practice, I think our faith benefits others. And I think we live in a culture that's wanting people of faith to be for benefit. 
people are looking at the church as if the church is just spending money on themselves and for themselves, building themselves up. And I would say, what if the church existed for the benefit of others? What if we were the only organization that were set up to cater to its non-members more than its members? Would that be revolutionary? What if we spent more money on the people not here than are here? Faith as for the benefit of others. And then lastly, faith, I think, when we practice these rhythms, becomes transferable. There's simply a way that I envision us reproducing our faith in another. Um, so what does this for you? I, I, I came up with one resource that I just want to make available to you, um, and it's called the Jesus Storybook Bible. Uh, and um, if, if you have children, I would encourage you to pick up this book. If you don't have children and, and are kind of wondering about the meta themes of the Bible, I think this is a wonderful, simplistic read and what it, what it really entails. If you're one of these people like, ah, oh, I like the New Testament, not the Old Testament, because God's really mad and then he's really loving. And so I'll take New Testament version. <laughs> and what, what the, they do so well is that every story gives a nod to Jesus as the central figure of the whole narrative. And so you could be reading a story about the Old Testament and you can kind of see a little indication of what, how Jesus is the central um, figure of, of the scriptures. And so it would just help put the Bible in perspective for you if you're just wanting to grow in your knowledge. Um, it is written for children and sometimes we just need to go back to that. But this would create a really rich conversation, I think, particularly if you have kids. So if you're wondering, where do I start? Um, especially if your parents, make this a dinnertime conversation, make this a bedtime conversation. If your kids are like my kids, they were always looking for a reason to stay up a little bit later. And so they were just willing um, to just have a little bit story time. I would just make that available and I'm gonna try and post a link on that as a resource under the resource tag on our website because I would love for everyone to be able to pick up that and begin to start to understand the larger themes of scripture. But uh, just in closing, I wanna just pray a prayer with you and uh, as we consider our rhythms and how they might be part of our own faith experience. Father, thanks for your loving kindness. Thanks for the story that you've been writing. Um, I, I thank you that you have, um, that you have begun a good work in us and you are gonna be faithful to see it through. I pray that we would participate in your kingdom on earth and you would see us um, as willing and able servants. And in some cases, I ask that you would provide people that would be guides and mentors and um, um, voices who would speak into the blind spots of our lives. Help us to be receptive to that wherever we are in our journey. But I also pray that you would make us aware of the people that you're already preparing, but you're already giving us influence with, that we might come alongside and speak about the reality of who you are and how you're changing our life. So make our lives transferable. Make our faith in you reproducible so that we might be a part of a multiplying community of faith. So just um, in these moments of worship, I would just simply ask, what is it that you might need saving from? Maybe you came from a church experience that was abusive and um, 
you're still trying to undo legalism. Maybe it was a church um, that was extremely boring and you're still waiting to come alive. What do you need saving from? And I would simply invite you to pray a prayer of receptivity where you just invite God's saving work. In some cases, you need to pray a prayer of God, heal the memories. In some cases, you might need to pray a prayer of confessing the doubts. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. I just think that this is the time of salvation, that we can just come uh, with our needs, with our questions, with our concerns, and ask God to save us. And that's a simple, just personal invitation that you can pray to a living Savior. So as we sing this song together, don't feel like you have to sing along, but maybe you just keep praying. Father, I pray that you would stir in our hearts and our minds that which you would uh, have us hear from you. We pray that there would just be a communion with your Holy Spirit in these moments, and you would just settle in our hearts a next step. Give us eyes to see that which you see, eyes to see that with whom you've prepared. Help us to see the needs, the opportunities, and the resources that are already present in our lives. We pray your kingdom come, your will be done.